Our knowledge of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 is evolving rapidly. We now know that many patients have symptoms and injuries related to damaged blood vessels and blood clots throughout the body. There are still many unanswered questions, but endothelial injury and hypercoagulability must be anticipated when COVID-19 is suspected in a patient. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for CMAJ. Today I'm talking to Dr. Patrick Lawler and Dr. Lucas Godoy, who have co-authored an article on coagulopathy and thrombotic manifestations of severe COVID-19. The article is published in CMAJ. Dr. Lawler is a cardiologist at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center in Toronto and a clinician scientist at the Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Lucas Godoy is a cardiologist and research fellow at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center in Toronto. I've reached them today in Toronto. Welcome. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Lucas, let's begin with you. Can you tell us how common are thrombotic manifestations or endothelial injury in patients with COVID-19? Yeah, sure. Um, that's an important question. So the rate actually varies according to um, the different reports in the literature. So we can say that it's somewhere between five to 30% of the patients with COVID that are hospitalized end up developing a thrombotic event. And uh, the reason for this variation might be the severity of the patients that are included in each one of these reports. So the first reports we have from China and then from Europe, they tend to include more patients uh, in the critical care unit. They were more severe patients and those patients that are at a higher risk of developing a thrombotic event. Now, the most uh, recent reports, they also included patients from the wards with not so uh, severe COVID disease. And, uh, you know, the rates then are a bit lower. So that's the reason for this variation. But uh, anyway, uh, it's important to realize that uh, COVID seems to be related to thrombotic events in a more important way than other similar conditions like influenza. Uh, even, you know, when you are dealing with less severe patients. So that's the importance of this topic. Can I clarify with you, you're not able to say from the evidence that we have what my likelihood of having a thrombotic event would be if I were to get COVID. You can only say within hospitalized patients, it's this common. Yes, that's correct. Um, so, um, you know, COVID, um, only around 10% max of the patients end up going to the hospital. And the evidence that we have for the thrombotic rates are really for these patients. We don't have right now a lot of data for outpatients with COVID. Most of the evidence that we have are for patients that at least needed to be hospitalized. So as I said in the beginning, it was only for ICU patients. Now we also know a bit about uh, patients that are not that critical, not that sick. Um, but uh, for outpatients, it's a bit more difficult to uh, know exactly what would be that rate. Probably lower um, than hospitalized patients, but it's really hard to say. Patrick, can we anticipate or predict which patients are more likely to be susceptible to coagulopathies? It's a quickly moving, rapidly moving target, and I think the evidence is generating, is accumulating, I should say, very quickly. You know, some of the biomarkers that people have looked at to try to ascertain risk are things like D-dimer. Um, D-dimer obviously is a marker in general of intravascular coagulation, um, but there may be imprecision to using it as such in patients with COVID. For example, there's a sense that 
augmented bradykinin activity leads to extravascular tissue factor binding, um, which then causes extravascular clotting pathways to be activated. D-dimer seeps back into the bloodstream, but isn't actually associated with, um, with intravascular clot in that setting. And something similar to that is seen in hereditary angioedema attacks where bradykinin is particularly active. Um, so there's a sense that that's a, a marker of interest, and many have indeed shown that that does certainly is associated with outcomes. Um, but the exact uh, way by which we should ascertain that risk is definitely a moving target, and I think it's a great question. Um, as Lucas says, we increasingly appreciate, I think, that you know, across the spectrum of illness severity, those that have really uh, quite a high burden of disease are much more likely to have one of these thrombotic events. Um, and it's important to, to mention and conceptualize that these events likely do cluster together. As you started out by saying, the endothelial injury, of course, is a systemic injury, uh, and the manifestations of such could be a macrovascular event, such as myocardial infarction or stroke on the arterial side, or a thromboembolic event, such as a TBT or pulmonary embolism on the venous side. But that may also track with other microvascular thrombotic processes causing things like renal failure um, or you know, secondary demand type MI, myocardial infarction, and respiratory failure, of course. So um, you know, all that to say, I, I think certainly the, the sick patients are those in whom to think about it more, although it certainly, as uh, Lucas says, is, is a problem across the illness severity spectrum. And I do think, at least at the moment, D-dimer is a reasonable uh, place to start, accepting that there is imprecision and uh, the quest to find uh, more accurate markers is certainly underway. And how exactly does SARS-CoV lead to disordered coagulation? I mean, what do we know about the cellular mechanism? Increasingly, I think it's clear that the virus uses the ACE2 um, receptor to, as its host receptor, which allows it to be uptaken into the vascular endothelium. And that causes a diffuse endotheliitis, causes direct endothelial damage, both from the viral infection and then also from the secondary host response that is triggered in response to that endothelial injury. So the body's own system then proceeds to attack the endothelium. All that endothelial damage, as it always you know, does in, in other settings, leads to upregulation of coagulation pathways, and those in turn cause uh, in situ thrombosis. That seems to be particularly a problem with SARS-CoV-2. Um, you know, in general, in things like influenza, there is a sense that heightened inflammation um, does cause direct activation of thrombotic pathways, and there certainly is an immunothrombotic um, kind of activation pathway that is present really in all infections, but it's particularly a problem in COVID because of this diffuse endotheliopathy that develops as a result of the infection. So expanding on that thought of diffuse endotheliopathy and that tissues all over the body are, you know, supplied by arteries and veins, what are some of the thrombotic events that patients with COVID-19 might have? Give us an idea. Well, uh, yeah, so Patrick touched a bit on that. Uh, and, uh, and if you get the whole spectrum of coagulopathy, you can have thrombotic or bleeding events. And from what you know right now, COVID is more related uh, to thrombotic events rather than bleeding. Bleeding might happen as well, but uh, it doesn't seem to be that common. And when it happens, it may be more related to consumptive uh, coagulopathy rather than a primary bleeding disorder caused by, the co by COVID. So it's more thrombotic. And uh, amongst thrombotic events, we can have uh, venous or arterial thrombotic events. And COVID may cause both. We have more uh, reports in the literature of the venous thrombotic events. So they seem to be more important right now. Um, and you know, from venous thrombotic events, we're talking basically about pulmonary embolism and deep, deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. 
it's uh, important to highlight there is a big discussion right now in the literature if what we see in the lungs uh, in patients with COVID is really the thrombi that we see there. It's really uh, the origin of that is from the, the venous thrombosis or rather a primary thrombotic, um, for a primary formation of thrombus in the lungs. So uh, it's not clear yet. It might be the case that since uh, the virus is... Uh, causes so much inflammation in the lungs, it might be triggering thrombosis to happen directly uh, and primarily in the lungs rather than uh, embolus from the lower limbs. Regarding arterial events, um, there have been lots of them reported. So cardiac injury seems to be common in patients with COVID. Up to 20% of hospitalized patients with COVID develop cardiac injury. Um, that could be only a troponin leak, but can also be a myocardial infarction. So um, caused by a thrombotic event in the coronary arteries. So uh, that seems to be the most important of the arterial uh, thrombosis events. We can also have stroke and others such as acute limb ischemia and even mesenteric ischemia have been reported in patients with COVID. So we can get some indication of coagulopathy and um, what's happening in that regard through biomarkers. What are some of the abnormalities that we may identify in patients with COVID who are at risk of coagulopathy? So we touched on D-dimer earlier, and I think that's probably where most of the spotlight has focused. Um, it probably, you know, my opinion is probably the, the marker which has the most validated kind of evidence base behind it. Again, with all the caveats mentioned, all the imprecision, um, it does seem to probably be the best one that we've got. There certainly are the markers of coagulopathy. As, as Lucas says, you know, with with the coagulopathy in COVID, as well as with DIC in general, of course, there's an intravascular coagulation um, pathways which are upregulated, but then that can progress to a consumptive picture that then um, kind of turns the tables and increases the risk of bleeding as clotting factors are degraded. Um, so certainly monitoring the clotting factors um, in concert throughout the process is really, really important, I think. Um, it does seem that the DIC in COVID is different than the DIC conventionally, so we're still getting a sense of what the, the targets and the goals should be, but certainly watching um, the whole spectrum of, of biomarkers, I think, could have coagulation biomarkers that is, of course, could in, improve an understanding of an individual patient's, um, you know, trajectory on that coagulopathy pathway. Um, you know, as Lucas says, we, we certainly do think that a lot of the end organ injury is because of likely small in situ thrombosis. Um, and so markers of organ injury in general are likely to be correlated with the um, risk of developing a macroscopic uh, you know, thrombotic event that would require treatment. Um, so there are some you know, institutions, for example, that have protocolized following things like troponin, um, other markers of uh, organ injury that could, in theory, herald that this process is going on. Um, and there are even some institutions that have advocated for empirically fully anticoagulating patients if their D-dimers above a certain cutoff. That's certainly not standard of care, but it is a uh, practice that many institutions have started to think about and some have started to do. So great question. I, in summary, we don't have great markers. Do you think D-dimers are probably the best we have? Important to track all of them in concert and other markers of organ injury would probably be helpful to follow in those patients at risk. So you spoke about um, institutions protocolizing certain investigations, and I wondered what your institution has done in that regard. So our, it's a good question. I'm at University Health Network in Toronto. Um, we've certainly had a lot of discussions, and it's been a little bit of a moving target. Um, we have a number of diverse practice settings, um, which... Uh, have taken care of these patients. Of course, we're fortunate that our caseload is very low at this particular day in which we're talking. 
but there has been a sense, uh, at least uh, the cardiology community has, for example, recommended sort of an active cardiac surveillance program. Um, there, uh, the checking of D-dimers has certainly at some points been part of the um, baseline admission order set type thing. Um, but again, it sort of has varied as the process has gone on. So I think it may be better for me to speak to my own thoughts. I think my own thoughts would be that D-dimer probably does have prognostic significance and somebody that, um, you know, has an equivocal or uncertain prognosis, such as someone coming into the hospital and whom you're not sure if they're going to be, what direction they're going to go in. And I think those kinds of prognostic biomarkers can certainly be helpful. Um, you know, in someone who's already in the ICU and receiving organ failure support, you know, perhaps those markers are less useful. They already know that something bad is happening um, clinically. So, you know, my, my thought would probably be that I would check those markers at baseline. I do think that surveying some things like troponin, things can herald a potential clinical deterioration, um, which can occur abruptly, unfortunately, in these patients. Um, so I think those types of surveillance approaches, I, I tend to think are probably worthwhile. I tend to be someone in general in my practice who likes a lot of objective data, but I think in the absence of really understanding the problem questions um, about what clinical trajectories may unfold for a given patient, I think gathering as much evidence as possible would make sense. And I think those markers can be useful. Yeah, even the clinical society guidelines, they are not uniform, their recommendations regarding the best approach, if you should order or not the dimer. I think most would say yes, uh, it's important to order the dimer because of those things uh, Patrick just mentioned, but uh, you, you can find in the literature different opinions as well. So it's really uh, hard to come up with a, you know, a very standardized uh, protocol or recommendation that will fit every scenario in every set of practice. That makes sense. So moving on from diagnosis and clinical appraisal, once you've realized that there are clinical manifestations of coagulopathy, how are these best managed? So we generally, I think many are taking the approach that they should be managed as they conventionally are. So, um, you know, a DVT should prompt full-dose anticoagulation, pulmonary embolism as such, and the duration of that, um, it's really not known in COVID, but there's a sense that we would just follow the usual clinical practice guidelines for those types of events. Um, you know, the management of myocardial infarction and the provision of, um, you know, catheter-based approaches is something that varies from institution to institution, but um, I would say broadly the sense is that we've managed these conditions and complications as we would have managed them outside of COVID. So nothing special for COVID patients, not earlier intervention, well, it, um, it's a good question about whether preemptive strategies are worth considering. And there, so there are a number of um, planned and, and actually a number of ongoing clinical trials uh, looking at whether a strategy of initial empiric full-dose anticoagulation uh, is superior to a strategy of more reactive, um, usual thromboprophylactic low doses that then get escalated in the presence of a DVT or PE or other clinical indication. Um, a couple of those trials are being led in Canada. Um, one of them, I'm part, Lucas and I are part of, called the ATT&CK trial. Um, it's an adaptive Bayesian trial that is uh, looking at the concept of doing full-dose heparin um, right out of the gates when a patient is admitted to the hospital versus, as I say, kind of more of a watchful waiting with thromboprophylaxis and then an escalation to one of these higher intensity strategies in the event that the patient develops a clinical, conventional clinical indication. The thought is that the clinical manifestations of thrombosis that we um, are, have mentioned, such as DVT and PE, MI and stroke, um, and systemic arterial embolization, are the kind of clinically detectable and conventional um, consequences of that. As Lucas says, we do think that other 
mechanisms um, of organ failure are likely to be underlied by this thrombotic cascade as well. And so the thought in this case is that some of those um, antithrombotics could have an effect to actually prevent organ failure and prevent patients from needing ICU level therapies and possibly dying. Um, so a lot of this, it's a very, very exciting sort of landscape. I think a lot of those trials are actively enrolling. Um, as I say, some of them uh, led out of Canada. Um, and uh, it's really very exciting. I think we you know, hope to have answers in the next six months or so from these. There's been an emerging partnerships to try to get answers as quickly as possible through collaboration, which I think are unprecedented and really exciting. Um, but it's uh, it's still very much an open question. And I think at this stage, as, as Lucas has highlighted, the guidelines are very much, you know, conventional low-dose trauma prophylaxis and, you know, see how patients do. And I think these are opportunities for us to test whether something more uh, proactive might be, uh, might be the right approach. I would say the trial is, is active in a number of centers throughout Canada. And if there is interest, of course, I don't mean to promote it, but that, I'm sure that there will be um, an opportunity to collaborate if, uh, if any listeners would like to learn more. We've talked about that this is a, a rapidly evolving area, moving target in terms of evidence. And you've, in your article, highlighted a number of resources that clinicians can look to. Uh, what, what are some of these main resources that they might want to use? Yeah, uh, so you know, we've, we have combined some of these resources in the article. It's uh, in the box too, as we put it there. So there are some uh, society guidelines as the uh, European Society of Cardiology, uh, they, uh, they put together a document uh, with guidance for the diagnosis and man management of uh, cardiovascular disease during COVID. And they also talk a lot about thrombotic events in that document. The International Society for Thrombosis and Hemostasis also have uh, a guidance uh, document on how to diagnose it, to do the diagnosis and the management of coagulopathy in patients with COVID. I think those would be uh, for clinicians the uh, some of the most important uh, guidelines that you have available right now. Uh, there are other recommendations from other entities such as the National uh, Institutes of Health in the US. Uh, Thrombosis uh, Canada also has their recommendation. Um, we also put together a list of places to find ongoing clinical trials uh, in patients with COVID. Uh, so, you know, people might be interested to know what trials are going on, where they live or where they can reference patients to. So you have some references there where people can search for current clinical trials uh, in patients with COVID and uh, coagulopathy or testing anticoagulant interventions in general in patients with COVID. Thanks for writing this brilliant comprehensive article for CMAJ. I guess the take-home message is for clinicians to be aware that patients with COVID-19 may well develop coagulopathy and be prepared to uh, manage it if necessary. That's very well summarized. And thanks for the privilege to contribute. It's really been a, really a great opportunity for us too. Thank you for the invitation. I've been speaking with doctors Patrick Lawler and Lucas Godoy, cardiologists at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center in Toronto. To read the article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for CMAJ. Thanks for listening. <laughs>